Good morning, North Aurora. That's good. That's good. The, the last thing that I need to tell you, I'm going to tell you at the beginning because I forget things at the end. So it's not the most important thing, but let me pause by telling you, this is not announcement time. A lot of times someone gets up at Chapel Street and they, they call these announcements. That, that's what you got on a handout. Those are sort of announcements. I'm just trying to bring them to life and I'm going to call them invitations this morning because these, these are opportunities for you to do something incredible other than just Sunday morning, which is always incredible. And because it's incredible, our parking lot is filling up. For like the first time you saw that, it was sort of a low budget sign, I got to be honest, that our communications team, <laughs> it, but, but I don't feel guilt right now because I drove right, right by it and I parked in our parking lot. I'm like guilty as charged. But on days like today and on other mornings when you're like, hey, I'm here early enough where I can make the extra 32 second walk from the school parking lot, consider that. Consider that because then that gives us more opportunity to minister to our neighbors who come and they can get like the preferred parking. Make sense? Yeah. The other things that I want to invite you to is the Christmas concert that is in December. And you could say, that's far away. I'll consider that in December. If you consider it in December, there are not, there are not gonna be any tickets for you. The, the tickets are available now, but I don't think we'll be announcing this next week or inviting you because I think there'll be no tickets. And you'll be then angry because there are always angry people that can't believe we're doing an incredible Christmas opportunity and then there's no tickets for them. There's limited concerts and there's limited seats. So get those tickets now. The coolest part about that is that $5, you know where the $5 goes? To the world. The $5 donation goes to serve the world, which is always sort of kind of cool for me since I lead that initiative. But uh, don't, don't sweat the $5 piece because you're ultimately giving that to gospel initiatives both across the street and around the world. Then if you do have a little one, the child dedication Zoom class is right here now. It's tomorrow. I believe I got that right. Uh, so be a part of that. But yeah, there's a couple little people around. Uh, but be aware of that. And then the last one is right here. How, how many times... I'm just going off mic right here because... All warm and we get to watch a movie together. Kids get to come in their pajamas. And some of you are like, yeah, not doing that. What? No, you, you don't have to come in this. But if, if you know families that like to try to figure out how to do some great family fun things, that's what Friday night is for. You, you need to be a part of bringing others to the star here at this worship, you know, in this place right here. But, but again, even if you don't, be a part of it. I mean, come because you want to be a part of this incredible church family and support other families that have littles. And again, you don't have to come with a snuggly, but uh, come prepared to love on families, see a great little movie, and support this church through things that we do to minister to the community.
So I'm going to invite our worship team to come up next. Uh, next week, remember to park in the uh, parking lot over there. And we're thankful to have Eric and his daughter leading us this morning. I did not plan on being married right now <laughs> before I met him. <laughs> I'm young. I'm 25. You know, my generation, we don't get married this young. So we met actually at a bar. <laughs> so not the most conservative Christian meeting there is out yeah. there. The way we look at how we met is that we both were not necessarily on in the right headspace, on the right path, and God put us in each other's lives. When I first met Anthony, I, uh, then I did give him my number, but then I kind of ghosted him for three months because I met him at a bar. I wasn't going to talk to this guy. Can't trust him. Next time I met up with Anthony, like three months later, I told him, I said, listen, I don't date men who aren't Christian. He's like, why do you assume I'm not a Christian? You never asked me. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. I just assumed. And he's like, well, I am. Like, I think I was very career driven, I think, at the time when I met uh, Jessica. And, um, and I think that naturally, I think, drove us to really, okay, if this is going to move forward, you know, what do we want in that? Kind of future relationship and for me too um, i really wanted again faith to be a huge part of that and seeing that like want and that need uh, in her really inspired me i think to, to grow as well i feel like the moment that we entered chapel street we just felt like that community there um, just with a group of people that um, were gathering so that was something that really drew us and another thing that really draw drawed us in as well was the fact that uh, there's a food pantry connected to it, and we are also focused on how can we feed our community. And to me, that's a very important issue because as a dietitian, I've done a lot of work with like food pantries in the past, and just that's something that I value. So from even when we had just gotten engaged, we were very intent on like how can we invest in our marriage to come, and then once we got married, we were, we wanted to invest in it. Um, we, even, we did premarital counseling with our pastor. We wanted to make sure we had a strong foundation. And then even when we were married, anything that said marriage, we were going there. Like yeah. anything related to the church, like if it said marriage in it, like we were going to sign up, we were going to go. If it's a conference, a talk, whatever it is, we were like 100% down to go. So the marriage retreat that we went to, it was wonderful. The intent of that is really just establish a strong relationship, look out for signs that may not be good signs, and uh, how can you address that and how can you grow? And it, it challenges us to ask a lot of questions and talk about a lot of things that weren't necessarily being talked about or being asked. And I think uh, one thing with some of those classes as well, and you know, you can go through that entire course, um, but all of it's, it's what you put into use, what you put into play. So I think if you take the, the items from that course, take the items from that class, and again, are able to kind of plug into that, really uh, practice what um, is reviewed each week. Uh, you can really make an impact. I mean, we're such a young couple. You don't think of us as like, okay, let's pursue every marriage yeah, class we can. It's like, oh, is there something wrong? But no, it's just about investing in your marriage early on so that way you don't wait till it gets really wrong to do something about it too. Um, and I think we even told someone that we weren't that close to like, hey, like we're doing this thing in our church and they're like, I think they had asked me or him, like, are you guys okay? <laughs> like, you're doing a marriage We're like, no, no, we just want to invest in our marriage now. When we're young, we're just starting out. I played sports in college, and, like, if you want to be good at sports, you have to practice.
practice, right? You have to practice when you want to be good at something. So why is that any different in your relationship? Like you have to invest in it, you have to put in the practice so that way you can be a better player, a better spouse down the road. I'm grateful for stories like that, and the reason we share stories like that is because uh, that's just as much a part of worship as, as singing, as coming to the Word of God, because we want to share the stories of what God is doing in people's lives, how He's encouraging them, how He's caring for them. Uh, and so uh, I love that in particular because one of the things that God cares deeply about, and I think is kind of a, a secret or a quiet challenge in our world, is marriages. You know, we kind of are compelled to say, well, if we're struggling, that's something we're going to figure out ourselves. We don't want to let anyone know what's going on. And the truth is that God wants to speak into our marriages, encourages in our marriages. And so uh, one of the things we're going to be doing in response to stories like that and wanting to build this environment as a church where we can be a place that seeks God in our marriages is we'll be hosting a marriage workshop in January of next year. Uh, it's going to be kind of a six-week course, January 7th through February 18th. And it's just a chance to kind of look at some biblical principles. What does God think about marriage? How can we uh, each be a spouse that encourages one another, blesses one another? Uh, and again, the truth is, we all need support in our marriage sometimes, even the best of marriages. Uh, and God is the best place to go for that. So uh, really grateful for that opportunity. If you want to jump in, please chat with me about it. We'll make sure to highlight this again and again as it draws near. Uh, but for now, let me pray for us as we head into God's word. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come to your word, uh, to be encouraged by your word. God, we've uh, been in this letter of James now for several weeks, uh, and it's loaded with good stuff. But uh, this morning, I just pray that we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't take our foot off the pedal, but Lord, we would press in to what James has to say, and God, that you would revive us, encourage us, strengthen us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, let me ask you this. Who is the biggest spender in your family? Uh, I ask you that question because the answer in my family is me. I like to spend money more than I should. Uh, and so I'm really grateful that I have married someone like Janae Griffiths because if not for Janae, I would be bankrupt in five minutes. I, like, I'm the guy that is compelled by every Facebook ad, every internet ad to buy these ridiculous things that you don't need. I've talked about this many times. Um, and so I, I, I'm always having to work on that. And I, one of the things that always comes in my mind when I think about my unfortunate capacity to spend is one day, Janae and I were on a date. We were walking by the river. Nice romantic date. And because I'm the person I am, I decided to play a game with Janae on the walk that said, what would you do if you won the lottery? Okay? So, of course, I'm thinking I would buy a mansion and, you know, all these other things. And Janae's response is, well, I would invest the money wisely in several different locations because I wouldn't want to pay the taxes on an expensive house. And I wouldn't want to, you know, she was just very wise about how she would use her money. And I was like, Janae, I don't think you get the point of the game. <laughs> the, the point of the game is to be extravagant and ridiculous. But that's, that's Janae's personality. That's mine. I'm a big spender. I can't control myself. You know, I, the lottery, as funny as that little story is, uh, what I learned that day from Janae, and I was shocked by this, is did you know that over 70% of lottery winners end up going bankrupt? Did you know that? Isn't that astounding? Did you also know that of those living below the poverty line, if you live below the poverty line, they tend to spend twice as much on lottery tickets as people above? Some people below the poverty line spending as much as 10% of their entire income on lottery tickets. Because there is a form of hope in wealth that we run to. When we're in need, when we're in lack, 
we think that wealth has a security for us. Truth is that wealth can actually be really destructive. It can be really destructive. It can be destructive specifically because of the power it has to take a hold of your heart. To take a hold of your heart. Bible's constantly asking us to evaluate what has the greatest hold on our hearts. What is it that has the tightest grip on your heart? Whatever has the greatest hold on your heart is going to be your greatest source of security and hope. And that level of affection should only belong to God. He's the only one worthy of holding that spot in your life. James, this letter that we've been going through for the last few weeks, is a letter that cares deeply about what has the greatest hold on your heart. James, if you didn't know, he's a pastor living in Jerusalem. He's actually the half-brother of Jesus grows up to become the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. is probably uh, one of the most important, if not the most important person in the early church. Counseling many of the churches that are forming, caring for many of the people who are becoming Christians. And he is so serious about the kind of life we live. He wants to make sure that we have a faith that works. He has no intention of letting the church become a place where they have this dysfunctional, misaligned faith that trusts in the wrong things, that looks to the wrong things. And so this whole letter is is his effort to encourage the church, to guide the church towards putting their hope in the right things, towards having a faith that works. And so here in the first half of chapter five, as we come towards the end of his letter, James is gonna kind of highlight for us some important things. Three things. He's going to give us some words of warning, some words of comfort, and some words of faith. So I want to look at those together. I want you to keep this question in the back of your mind. What has the tightest hold on your heart? As we listen to this warning, this comfort, this story of faith, what is it that grips your heart? So let's talk first about these words of warning. Now, uh, I have no shortage of stories from England, right? That's like my go-to thing as a pastor from uh, once growing up in England. So I apologize that we're doing another British story. But do you know what? British people just give me a lot of material. So uh, <laughs> this morning, I, I was, oh, this week rather, I was, I was reflecting because November 5th is an important day in British culture. Guy Fawkes Day, that's right. I love, come on, this is a good campus. People know. Uh, you're right, and we always kind of say this song, remember, remember the 5th of November. And British people, being the lovely, jolly people that they are, the way we decide to commemorate Guy Fawkes is we set things on fire and we shoot off fireworks, right? It's kind of the British equivalent of Independence Day. Except instead of, instead of celebrating freedom and liberty, we're celebrating having caught Guy Fawkes and burned him to death. We just, we want to make sure we remember that. So, uh, but what, what you do, every British child knows November the 5th, you go out, you fi- shoot these fireworks off. But one thing that the British public always wants to make clear, to young children in particular, is fireworks are dangerous. And every British kid growing up remembers for the first time seeing some of the commercials that play on TV around November the 5th. I don't know whether this is like an American thing around July 4th, but I remember as a kid, maybe like seven or eight, watching this commercial that left me truly horrified and made me never want to go near a firework in my entire life. Like, they, they just show these horrifying, terrifying things of when, you know, when things go bad, right? Terrible warnings. Now, this front half of James chapter 5 is kind of a terrible warning, a frightening warning, something that, that's uncomfortable to read, something that, you, that kind of gets into the center of your mind, you remember it, and you think, man, why is James so serious about this? Let me read to you what he says, and you'll understand what I mean. James 5, verses 1 through 6 says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. 
Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. That's kind of one of those passages in the Bible that's just uncomfortable to read. It's uncomfortable to read. And in fact, many scholars say that this is one of the most scathing kind of rebukes, corrections, warnings in all of the New Testament. The New Testament would just so heavily fixate on grace and mercy and love, and yet here James gets more fired up than any other point in his letter and warns those who are rich. Now, why does he talk this way? There's a couple of things to kind of get out of the way to understand what's happening here. First, it's, it's not entirely, it's, it's, it's not possible uh, that James is talking solely to the church. He's, so when we, when we read this and we read this letter and we think, okay, James is writing to the church, he's trying to encourage the church, so is that who he's talking to when he says these things? But the truth is, actually, he's probably talking about another crowd. He's, he's probably talking about a, a crowd of wealthy people outside of the church that are oppressing the church. And it's, it's kind of a common way of writing in, in the ancient world, and particularly if you're a, a biblical writer, called prophetic lament. And what prophetic lament is, is when a, a biblical author will write about a group that are oppressive or uh, unjust, and he, and he talks to them, even though they're not present, almost as a comfort to those who are being oppressed, who are present. They can hear you, and they want to hear, is God going to judge this injustice? Is he going to bring judgment on, on this oppression? And the prophetic lament is kind of a way for the writer to say, yes, he is. Let me tell you what he's going to do. Now, that said, should that mean that we just kind of turn off here and say, okay, he's not talking to us. We're in the church. We're in the good crew. No, unfortunately not. <laughs> because the truth is, we live in a very different world now than they did in James's day. For those of us inside of this room, no matter what our income bracket is, we live in the top 1% of wealthy people in the world. We live in a very different culture than that church did. Much more means, many more possessions. In, in 21st century American culture, wealth and possessions is an idol and a danger for all of us. All of us. We like to imagine it's those that are far beyond us, but the truth is it's a danger to all of us. And so even though this might not be addressed specifically to us, we should be very careful to think about what James is saying here and take his warning seriously. Because his warning is this, don't put your trust in earthly treasure. Don't let wealth or possessions have the tightest hold on your heart because they can ruin your soul. Ruin your soul. James is not saying wealth in general is bad, okay? He's not saying to be wealthy is an evil thing. The Bible actually tells us many stories of those who followed God, who were faithful to God, loved God, who had a great deal of resources and wealth. But what James is saying is a love for money can be really destructive. A love for material possessions can be really destructive. And he points it out in a couple of different ways. He talks about at the, the start of this chapter, three things that were kind of markers of wealth in his day. He says that your riches have rotted, rotted kind of like food rot. And the reason he's saying that is because one of the markers of wealth in James's day was whether you owned land that you could grow grain on, that you could grow food on. If you had the ability to have produce, you were probably wealthier. 
Second thing that he says is he says, your garments are moth-eaten. Because the second marker of wealth in James's day was clothing. Many families only had one change of clothing. But if you had multiple changes of clothing, if you were part of the Roman aristocracy or something like that, that's how people knew you were wealthy. You had many clothes. And the last thing he says, your gold and silver have corroded. And that one's a little bit more obvious. Gold and silver being kind of your basic finances of the day, the economy of the day. Who has the gold and silver? And what he says about each of these things, he highlights, these are all the markers of wealth and possession. And what does he tell you about all three of them? They fail. All of them. They corrode, they rot, they're moth-eaten, they fall apart. They are temporary and insecure. And he's saying this because he wants the rich to understand. He wants us to understand money is not a safe thing to let hold your heart. Because it's temporary. First danger of wealth and possessions is it gives you a false sense of security. False sense of security. And if you allow it to give you a false sense of security, what it can end up doing is that that same thing that rusts itself will actually rust you. That same thing that corrodes itself will corrode you if you put your hope in it. Because it gives you that false security. James says that they've laid up treasure for themselves in the last days. Some, some translations actually says hoarded. So what he's saying is that there's people that have, have gathered wealth, they've accumulated wealth, and they've just hoarded it. Has anybody ever seen that show, Hoarders? It's a weird show. (laughs) But what's the impression you get every time you watch it? Why do these people have so much stuff? Why do they have all of these things, right? Like it's glaringly obvious when you watch that show like that. It's holding out in front of you how silly it is to amass possessions. It's just problematic in so many different ways. And he's the real real heart of why it's problematic is if you're hoarding You're not using the resources that God has given you to bless others. You're just keeping it for yourself. That's the antithesis of what God has given you resources for. God has blessed us and provided for us so that we could be a blessing. That's what he said about his people from the very beginning in the Old Testament. My people are intended to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That's why in Ecclesiastes, King Solomon says, there's a grievous evil I have seen under the sun, riches that were kept by their owner to his heart. Solomon, who wrote that, one of the wealthiest people in the area at the time he wrote it, and what's he saying? What's the wealthy man saying to us? It can be so destructive. Hoarded wealth is not good. It certainly can't solve the real problems of your soul. Jesus, in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, says very similar. Probably James is quoting his brother, in fact, when he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus again, he's saying what matters here is not the possessions themselves, it's what kind of control do they have over you. Goes on to say in verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. It's a second danger of wealth. It doesn't, it doesn't just give you a false sense of security. It can control you. It can master you. If you let it get deep in your heart, if you let it be your deepest source of hope and security, then it can twist you out of shape. There's a, one of my favorite stories is the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And if you've read this by C.S. Lewis, there's a point in that story where a character used to scrub 
um, which is a marvelous name, he finds a cave of treasure. And he goes in and he starts stuffing his pocket with as much treasure as he can. And what happens is in the morning, he wakes up and he's turned into a dragon. So part of the story kind of is this journey of how does he undo this horrible thing, this horrible thing that he's become as a result of his greed and his desire to hoard. And C.S. Lewis is doing a marvelous job of, of giving us a picture, an illustration of what happens to all of us. All of us become dragons if wealth controls our hearts. It changes us. And the culmination of a heart that's controlled by wealth, we hear in this passage as well. We get to the end, the most frightening thing that letting wealth control your heart can do is he says that it makes us blind to our neighbors. It makes us blind to our neighbors. He says that these rich that are being accused, that are being condemned, they have held back the wages of the laborers who have worked in their fields. And the cries of these people have reached the God of heaven. He hears it, but who does not hear it? The wealthy, the people who have amassed this wealth, they have become blind and deaf to their neighbors. They're blind and deaf to the injustice that they themselves are bringing in to the lives of these people who have served them and helped them and labored for them. They don't see the people that matter. Now, I don't think I'm particularly wealthy, but I know for sure that my love for this and other little gadgets and having a functional car and different things, sometimes I can get so fixated on maintaining those things for myself that I'm blind to the needs of other people around me. When my iPhone breaks down, it doesn't even occur to me, maybe I should buy something a little less expensive than an iPhone to replace this one. Because I wanna maintain, I wanna maintain the lifestyle I have, I wanna make sure I maintain the possessions I have. And in that moment, there's nothing wrong with buying an iPhone, so we're clear. What matters in, is that in that moment, am I willing to evaluate my heart and say, Lord, if you ask me, I will give that up because I want to make sure that my wealth is being used for your glory and not mine, for your kingdom and not mine. Again, I can't be more clear about it. It is not your wealth itself that is evil. It is not your possessions themselves that is evil. It is what they do to your heart if you will let them. So let me ask you, where do you spend your money? Where does your wealth go? Because the wrong treasure can corrode your heart, can turn you into a dragon, but the right treasure can strengthen your heart. So that's why James wants to give us some words of comfort. Let's take a look at the words of comfort. Ginny and I, uh, some of you know we were in New York a couple of weekends ago. It was my first time there. Really excited about it. We got to eat at some restaurants on Times Square. And the game that we always play, this is true on every date night that we go on, is you always get to a restaurant, right, and you say, how long's the wait? And you kind of play the game of how much do I love this restaurant and therefore how long am I willing to wait? Because I've been in some restaurants where they say 45 minutes and I'm like, deal, I will, I will live with that. There are some other restaurants that say like 10 minutes, I'm like, ah, just, you know what, I'm out. You've probably played that game. And the idea is, is, that, is there something at the end of your waiting that is valuable enough to have you wait? Is there something at the end that is, that is treasure enough that it is worth your patience and your steadfastness? James wants us to know that there is a treasure that is worth your patience and your steadfastness. What is it? Let's read. He says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. 
Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So James wants the church to be patient. And the thing that controls that patience is this little phrase, the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. James is turning his attention now to the church and he's saying, don't, don't be like these rich that have trusted in the wrong thing, whose hearts have been controlled by the wrong thing. Let your heart be controlled by the coming of the Lord. It's actually kind of a flip of what's happening with the rich. Because to the rich, he's essentially saying, because of what you've done, because of the way that you have trusted in the wrong things, that is coming and it's going to be bad for you. But to the church, he's saying, if you trust in the right thing, if your heart treasures the right thing, that is coming and it's a great comfort for you. It's a great comfort for you. James is saying that if you let your heart be ruled by the right treasure, it doesn't turn you into a dragon. It turns you into someone who has great strength and courage. He uses this analogy of a farmer that's waiting patiently for his crops to grow. Right? We can all understand that idea, right? The farmer plants something, he waits for the rains, and there's this, this waiting period until what he has planted comes to fruition. But the farmer's okay with it because he knows there is a certainty there is something sure. So he waits patiently. And what James is saying is the reality of Christ's coming, his first coming to us, we'll celebrate here at Christmas that he come and he dwelt with us, and also the reality of his second coming, that he will return, that that is a certain fact of human history that will give us confidence and hope and strength, and it will make us patient, particularly patient in two areas. First, it will make us patient in our relationships. What James says is if you are setting your heart on the coming of the Lord, then you will not grumble with those around you. And I think grumble is a very intentional word choice on James' behalf, because what he could say to this church that's being persecuted, that's being struggled, is he could say, don't speak ill of those who are persecuting you. Don't speak ill of the Romans or the Jewish authorities that are oppressing you, arresting you. But what he says is don't grumble against each other. Don't grumble inside the house of God. Because he knows that grumbling is a very easy thing to do. Are you a grumbler? Are you a critical person? Are you someone that always has to nitpick and find the, the kind of the, the low moments in life? Are you a Debbie Downer? In uh, Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis's book, I've, I've lent this out a couple. It's one of my favorite books, and The Great Divorce is a story. It's not, it's not what Lewis actually believes about heaven and hell, but it's a story about heaven and hell that just like Narnia is meant to help us understand certain things, and it's the story of a, a group of people from hell who take a day trip to heaven to see what it's like. And they're actually, yeah, every single one of them is given an invitation to stay, and yet all of them reject it for different reasons. And there's one person in particular who is a grumbler. She's always complaining about different things in her life and she always finds fault with things in her life, fault with other people. This person let me down, they didn't do the right thing. I, I was going to read the section, but it's so long, there's so many things that this person grumbles about. And they're a person completely devoid of joy and hope. And James says, that's not the kind of people we should be if we understand who Jesus really is. If we understand the certainty of his promises. Tim Keller said, there's nothing more miserable than being unable to get out of your own needs. And that's what a grumbler is. Someone who's stuck in their own needs. 
See, the reality of Christ, it gets you out of yourself. It promises you something beautiful and good and certain so that you don't need to be consumed by your own needs anymore. People don't need to be anything in particular for you anymore. That's what Christ sets you free to do. The reality of Christ also brings patience in suffering. James talks about the suffering of the prophets in verse 10. Talks about Old Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah, who was called the weeping prophet. It was hard to be Jeremiah. You had to speak the word of the Lord and people rejected you. People did not agree with you. People did not like what you had to say. And yet Jeremiah was steadfast. He was patient. He endured through his sufferings because there was a certainty about who God was, a certainty about God's promises that Jeremiah understood. And it allowed him to endure in suffering. It didn't make his suffering any less difficult. It didn't you know, kind of put this magical spell on all of his suffering that made it... Uh, lack any pain for Jeremiah? No, that stuff all happened, but there was something beyond his pain and his immediate suffering that he knew was sent and it was coming from and he could trust that God would get him there. And we, and James's hearers, we have something even more certain than Jeremiah had because we've seen the resurrection of Christ. We know that God's promises are sure. Hebrews 6 tells us, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews is saying, well, there's something that we have that can hold us together in suffering. And it's the reality that Christ has come. He's walked through suffering himself. He understands what it's like. And he's gone ahead to make sure that there is an end to it. So James says, look to the coming of the Lord. Remember Christ's promises. Remember what he told us he would do. And it will bring patience to you. It will bring a security that no treasure could buy. You will have exactly what the rich are lacking. Something that's certain. In the deepest place of your heart, what is it that brings you your security and confidence? What brings you patience? What brings you hope? What brings you perseverance? Now, some of you, I'm sure, are saying at this point, well, this sounds great. I would love to have that kind of perseverance. I want to have that. I see this this message of Jesus that he can do all these things, but the truth is, I haven't experienced that. I haven't felt that. Why haven't we felt that? I think part of the answer to that question lies in this last little section, the words of faith. Words of faith. James finishes verses 11 and 12. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James is trying to help the church experience this hope he has talked about. This whole letter is an an effort to get them to have a faith that works. Faith that works. And so James reminds them of how do you set your heart on Jesus? How do you allow him, how do you put yourself in a position where he can become the deepest treasure of your heart that brings patience and security and hope? And the two things is you must see is compassion and mercy and you must let go of yourself. See is compassion and mercy and let go of yourself. First, see is compassion and mercy. Job uh, is, the, is the prophet that's specifically mentioned in this little section. He says, remember the steadfastness of Job. If you've never read that book, again, I encourage you to go read the book of Job. Amazing story of perseverance, 
in a man whose life was full of suffering. Full of suffering. But the interesting thing about Job is at no point in Job does God give an explanation to Job about his suffering, why he let it happen. Instead, God kind of at the close of Job says, I want you to trust me, Job. I want you to see me. And Job says in Job 19, he says, I know my redeemer lives. Goes on to say, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. There was a conviction in Job's heart about the compassion and mercy of God, the love of God that helped him endure. He saw something in God, even that his suffering couldn't take away from him. Even all of his suffering, he didn't say, I can't see it. He said, I can see it. I know it. God even comes to him and has this conversation, which I think in and of itself is an evidence of God's compassion and mercy, isn't it? Because God does not owe us conversations. And yet God comes and he talks to people. Again and again throughout all of scripture, people who suffer and struggle and ache and are anxious, God comes and he speaks to them. And even when he doesn't offer them explanations, he's still the fact that he is willing to come and debate with man, talk with man. Even the idea of the incarnation of itself, that God would leave the heavens and draw near to us to be a teacher like Jesus was, to talk with us, to hold conversations with us. There's a compassion and mercy in God that makes him trustworthy. And the second thing is you've got to let go of yourself. James closes this chunk with this kind of odd, almost feels a little out of left field, this statement about oaths. Don't swear oaths. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. And actually, again, it's another direct quote from his brother's most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said this. He says, again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now why does anything more than that come from evil? It feels again like James has been a little harsh. Well, James and Jesus both lived in a culture where swearing oaths was common. It's what people did, particularly religious people. It was kind of a nice religious jargony way of, of showing your piety and your religious commitment. You would say, I swear by the temple or I, I swear by heaven that I will accomplish this for God. And what are you doing in that moment when you're swearing an oath, you are looking at yourself and you're putting a confidence in your ability and your ability to hold your own oaths and what you have committed to do. And that's not faith. That's actually an attempt to manipulate God. Do you know there's actually two ways to reject God? There is what you might call irreligion, which is just a, an outright refusal of anything biblical or godly. You say, I don't want to live like that. I don't want him to be master. I don't want anything. But there's also another way you can reject God, and it's called religion, which may sound confusing to some of you, but let me point out what I mean by that word religion. If irreligion is a rejection of, of God's rule entirely, religion is a rejection of your inability. Religion is a rejection of saying, well, I need help. Because what religion says is actually, I can keep the rules and I can do a good enough job to make God owe me. 
I can keep his rules well enough that God will owe me eternal life because I will have done all the things. I'll have ticked all the right boxes. I'll have completed the list. That is a rejection of God too. It's a rejection of his grace and his mercy and that you cannot do anything to manipulate him into a position where he would owe you. You can't do that. The reason we shouldn't swear is, is actually made clear in Hebrews 6. In Hebrews 6, it says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. So the one swearing in an oath in that case is God. God swore an oath all the way to the ancestor Abraham. He said, I will rescue my people. I will redeem my people. Made a promise to him. So when we swear our oaths, we are ignoring the fact that God has already made an oath for us on himself. And when we swear our oaths, we're saying it's not good enough that you've swore by yourself. And yet what Hebrews says is that God chose the highest possible thing that he could hold himself accountable to, which was himself. The Christian life is a dependency, not on our oaths, but on God's oath. Not on our promises, but on his promises. That's why we say yes to Jesus and no to ourselves. It's possible to have been in church your whole life and to have had your heart ruled by your ability to follow religion. To have your heart ruled by your own oath. And that cannot give you the patience that James is talking about. So the real reason some of us have never experienced and felt what James describes is because we haven't yet let our yes be yes and our no be no. Jesus' message to you, the gospel is this, you have not been enough, you cannot do enough, but Jesus is enough. And he was enough for you. Out of love for you, he offered himself for you to be for you what you could not be for yourself. When James tells us this beautiful phrase in James 5, establish your hearts, that's what he wants us to establish our hearts on. God's oath to us by himself that he would be for us what we could not be for ourselves. In May, my mom passed away. It was a difficult time, as you can imagine. Went over... Uh, I was told just a couple of days before she actually passed, they think she's going to pass. She'd been sick for a number of years. So I raced home as fast as I could to be with her. And I'd, I'd been praying the entire time that she'd been sick. I'd said, Lord, I, I just want one thing, and I just want to be with her when she passes. I don't, I don't want her to be by herself. I, forgive me if I get emotional about this. I, there's obvious reasons. But uh, what happened when I got there was one of the best days of my life. God was so gracious to me because he let me be with my mom. But in particular, what we did is we sat by her bedside. She never woke up, unfortunately. But my sister and I, just alone, just the three of us, we got to read scriptures to her. We got to pray with her. I sang a song that I'd written for her. It was beautiful. It was just a wonderful day of just being with her. Painful, but wonderful. And then God gave me one of the greatest gifts he has ever given me. Because as we were reading scripture, my sister was reading Hebrews 12. This is what she read from Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2. She said, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That was one of the most beautiful gifts that God gave me, because at the moment, and I do mean the very moment that my sister read looking to Jesus, my mom breathed her last breath in this world. And I believe she was looking at Jesus then. But the comfort for me, the reason why it's a gift for me is because in that moment, I believe God orchestrated my sister to read that verse that moment because he wanted to remind me, your mom's hope and your hope are not what you've done, it's Jesus. The confidence I have about where my mother is now is not how great a person my mom was, though she was a wonderful person. It's not the accumulation of her resume. It's not the oaths that she swore. It's not the wealth or possessions that she had because she didn't have a lot. It is that Jesus is a certain and sure hope for anyone who trusts in him. And I know that she rejoices with him now. And one day I will too, even though I am a broken, sinful person, have made many decisions that are beneath what is... uh, asked of us by God, because God is gracious to me, because he sent his son, because he swore by himself. And that's what God wants me to establish my heart on, and that's what God wants you to establish your heart on, is Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Establish your hearts, church, not on the security of wealth and treasures that fade and rust and corrode, Establish your heart, church, not on your fickle obedience and your ability to keep your own oaths. Establish your heart, church, on this one certain and sure thing. Jesus, who has come, who is coming back again, and who is everything that we need. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the joy of your son, of having the certain and sure hope that we are loved by him, that he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And Father, forgive us that we so often let our hearts become ruled and controlled by our wealth and possessions, by the oaths that they swear, by our religion and our irreligion. God, we want to put our trust in you. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that feels this morning that call from you to put that trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would be gentle and kind and gracious to them and help them to know the certainty and the hope that they have if they come to you, if they confess their need and trust in you, Lord, you are faithful. You bring forgiveness, you bring healing, and you bring us a foundation on which we can build our entire lives. Help us, Lord, to see that, to know that, to live that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for worship today. It's been an encouragement me to be together with the body of Christ. I hope it has been for you. Uh, please know if there's any way we can pray for you. We want to be available. We have a prayer room. I would love to pray with you. We have volunteers who can pray with you. Uh, So don't leave if you're struggling, if you need encouragement. Uh, And if you're a new guest with us, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We're glad that you were here. We have a gift for you at our welcome desk. We'd love to get to know you a little bit more. So don't head out in too much of a rush. But for now, let me leave us with this benediction, the words of Hebrews 12 that says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's in his name that we go. Amen.